The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. A while back, I was invited to participate in helping to write a book titled Journeys End, Death, Dying, and the End of Life. The primary author editors are Victoria Brewster and Julie Sager Nuremberg, and I hope to interview them on this program in the near future. The book's a remarkable look at death and dying through many points of view, and, uh, well, let me scan through the contents to give you a taste of what it has to offer in its almost 500 pages. Uh, unique perspectives on death, the dying individual's perspective, death of a spouse or life partner, death of a parent, uh, death of a grandparent or great-grandparent, death of a sibling, uh, death of a child, death of a grandchild, death of an infant or unborn child, a child's perspective on death, death of a friend, uh, death and the blended family, a tapestry of dying woven into the fiber of life, Violent death and lack of knowledge or resolution. I encountered many of those uh, sad cases in my work as a chaplain. Then there are professional support and caregiving perspectives. Home care providers, uh, primary care physician internist, uh, hospice and palliative physicians, nurses perspective, hospital and hospice support providers, intensive care unit, um, ICU physician, uh, death of an in- intensivist. I'm not sure if they have a, an EMT uh, ambulance. Oh, yes, emergency medical service worker. I did that for eight years. Social worker, clinical ethicist, peace officer, military veteran. All of these different exper- uh, experiences taken from the people who have lived through them. These are all written by different different folks. Grief and bereavement support professionals. And then uh, ceremonies and celebrations memorializing death, religious and spiritual perspectives, therapy dog uh, for the ill and dying. Um, my work with uh, in the hospital with pet therapy dogs was uh, remarkable, um, powerful, how much uh, love a dog can give to a, to a sick patient. End-of-life communications, end-of-life Educational training, planning, preparedness, uh, goes on and on. Changing our cultural understanding of death and dying, which is something that all NDEers should be participating in. When end-of-life care is ongoing, natural death or assisted suicide, death with dignity, and so on and so on. And they open the, the book with a couple of uh, really good quotes, and I thought I would read those to you to start. This is from Karen Wyatt. When we embrace our own physical impermanence, we discover the truth that dying in many different forms is actually one of the change agents for life and makes transformation and growth possible. Thus, our greatest fear in life is revealed to be our greatest impulse for creativity and transcendence. That's Karen Wyatt. Then here's one uh, from uh, an MDiv, a doctor of uh, divinity, or a PhD, rather. Apparently, contemplating mortality, even when it is 
staring us in the face is not the politically correct thing to do. We all, those of us who have tried to tell our NDE stories, uh, recognize that. This was Richard Wagner said that in his book, The Amateur's Guide to Death and Dying. And then uh, Ray Ginsburg wrote, Death is not an enemy. It is a creative disruptor. It is one of our most profound and valuable teachers. It is life-affirming. It is our gateway to meaningful and vigorous life. So anyway, I thought I would read you my concluding chapter. Um, it uh, This book is going to be, I think, a great addition to the library of hospital chaplains and other healthcare professionals as well. And this final chapter, which I contributed to the book, uh, begins with my own brief childhood, NDE. When I was seven and a half, I waded too far into a small New Jersey lake. The slope fell off sharply, and I slipped off the edge into deep water. I came up once, let out a scream that emptied my lungs, and then descended slowly to the bottom. When my lungs filled with water, my soul left my body and rose into a nearby birch tree. And from there, I could see my mother uh, running to the shore to jump in, dive down to my body and pull me up. She dragged me to the shore, uh, threw my face down over a log, and uh, threw me face down over a log, I should say, and pushed on my back to try to get the water out of my lungs. In the process, she more or less invented a CPR, since the log did chest compressions each time she pushed. And no angel was there to tell me. I just knew I had to go back into my body. Now, there is a dream or series of dreams connected with this story. For years afterward, while growing up, I had this recurring dream that I was falling away from the light down a dark tunnel. I thought it was a memory of my sinking to the bottom of the lake, that the light was the sun on the surface and the darkness was water too deep for the light. Years later, as an adult in my 20s, I returned to the lake and dove down just to see if my dream reflected the reality of sunlight underwater. It did not. The sun, sunlight spread uniformly across the surface of the lake, and all the way to the bottom, there was no tunnel effect at all. It was not until years after that, in my first reading about near-death experiences, that I realized the tunnel and the light were a memory of where I was falling from as I went back into my body. The most important thing to understand about death is that essentially we are consciousness, and consciousness does not die. This evolving truth has not come primarily from science, which until now has considered our brain to be the only source of our awareness, and it has come only tangentially from religion, which typically relies on, on denominational formulae uh, for describing our relationship with God in the afterlife. But if we consider the question of human death only in terms of comfort care and the ritual forgiveness of sin, we are missing the point. It would be like securing the worm in its cocoon with no consideration given to the butterfly it is about to become. Some of today's insights into the essence of our being, consciousness, are coming from reports of personal mystical events such as near-death experiences, NDEs, and out-of-body experiences, OBEs. These reports often come from survivors of cardiac arrest, 
who have experienced a shutdown of normal brain function for lack of blood flow and oxygen. But such out-of-body events can occur during other situations as well. Even disruptive depression can sometimes trigger an OBE. For the most part, though, NDEs and OBEs occur as the result of heart attacks, accidents, drowning, medical procedures gone wrong, and the like. The reason NDEs and OBEs now seem to be happening every day is that experiencers are being revived more and more often and therefore get to tell us what they learned during their near death. Before 1967, cardiac arrest was usually a terminal event. If you were arrested, you died. Since then, chest compressions, defibrillators, and drugs have revived many arrested patients, especially those who code in the hospital. Today, people who remember their NDEs and OBEs are surviving in the United States alone uh, an estimated 774 times a day. What happens during such an experience, and how do we know it's not a dream, hallucination, or projected images from the dying brain? By now, the veridical evidence is overwhelming that these experiences are real. As a typical scenario, take an operation gone wrong. A man lies dead on the operating table with no breath, no heart function, and a flatlining brain. Suddenly, the patient finds his consciousness leaving his body and floating up to the ceiling where he watches the doctors and nurses as they struggle to get his heart started again. At first, he may be confused and may try to tell the doctors that he's okay, but they don't seem to hear him, and the patient feels fine, no pain, no concern, as he watches and listens to what is going on. After that, he may drift through a wall or two and find himself in the waiting room listening to his family discuss the situation. If he goes further, he may experience flying through deep space or traveling down a tunnel toward a golden loving light. On the way, angels or deceased family members may accompany him. Leaving the tunnel, he may find himself in a luminous field filled with flowers more beautiful than he'd ever seen before. He may also experience a life review where his whole life passes before his eyes like a movie, but with the dimension of experiencing firsthand the joy or pain he has caused others. Most NDEers describe this place as the most intensely beautiful and loving place imaginable, but at some point they are told they must return, that their work on earth is not yet accomplished. Usually they don't want to come back to their painful, broken bodies, but they often understand that they are being sent back to complete their life's goals. It's what NDEers tell us about what they remember that persuades all but the most stubborn of the reality of the experience. For instance, the OBEs, OBEers who watch the medical team's efforts to save them can usually report in detail what was said and done when equipment was used, um, and in one off-sighted case, even describe when a nurse uh, stored the patient's missing dentures and where they were, where they were later found. NDEers may report when the family member, what the family members said or did, whether in the waiting room or miles away from home, uh, at home, during the time when their bodies lay dead on the operating table. Patients who are blind since birth have fully describe the scenes they witnessed below. Since out of body, they suddenly find they could see with perfect vision. Of course, not all NDEers have such powerful evidence to offer. 
In those cases, some doctors argue these reports must come out of books, movies, and TV shows the patient has already seen about NDEs. To test that argument, studies have been done with child experiencers who, before their NDE, were never exposed to such coverage. The studies demonstrate that without any pre-programmed expectations, children report the same visions of angels and the light of God's love. As further proof, we must also consider the spontaneous healings and miraculous uh, cures that sometimes occur with an NDE. Uh, cancer patients have sometimes returned from death with their cancer completely gone. One woman I interviewed in my job as hospital chaplain told me the following story about her fatal accident. She said, I ran off the road at high speed and crashed headlong into a tree. I was out of my body, standing outside the wreck and looking at my mangled body. I turned around, and Jesus was standing there. I was never religious, and I knew nothing about Jesus. All I knew was it was him. He told me it was not my time and that I would have to go back into my body. When the ambulance arrived, I heard the medic say she will never make it to the hospital. When they got me into the trauma room, the doctor said, she won't make it to the operating table. When I got to rehab, they told me, you'll probably never walk again. Two weeks later, completely healed, she walked herself out of the hospital. There are other gifts NDEers can return with as well. Most no longer fear death, and others have a calling to uh, change their lives, work to help others, and teach or preach or heal. Some leave their jobs, some even leave their marriages when their spouses can't understand or appreciate the profound changes in their life's goals, their personalities, or their religious practices. Among the world's gifted are many uh, who describe having had a near-death or out-of-body experience, including St. Paul, Mohammed, St. Teresa of Avila, Nikola Tesla, Carl Jung, the actor Peter Sellers, just to mention a few. The artist uh, Hieronymus Bosch, circa 1490, painted a picture of angels taking the deceased through the tunnel and into the light. He called it Ascent of the Blessed. And in 1892, one of Einstein's university professors, having had an NDE himself, collected and published other stories of their own near-death experiences as well. I've taken this time to describe the near-death experience because of the insights it offers as to what happens when we do finally die. Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote the classic text on death and dying, and Dr. Raymond Moody, who uh, coined the term near-death experience in his book Life After Life, started studying the numerous reports of end years back in the 1970s due to the resuscitation techniques coming into place at that time. They, along with others, founded IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies, which remains an important resource for NDE research to this day. Of course, NDEs had been reported long before that. One of the earliest written descriptions was provided by Plato some four centuries before Jesus' era in the last book of the Republic. In that account, a soldier named Ur was killed in battle, had an NDE, and returned to tell his people what happens when we die. He and others who had died found themselves in a field and traveled to a place where their lives were judged, the life review, 
And though Ur was told to return, he saw that the others went to a place of reward or punishment for a time and then would reconvene with others, uh, with another, with one another, before drinking from the river of forgetfulness and drawing lots for their next reincarnation. Near-death experiences, it's been uh, estimated by Gallup, occur in the United States some 774 times a day. And as hospital chaplains, my colleagues and I have heard hundreds of NDE and OBE reports from our hospital alone. As patients more and more these days uh, arrive at death's door with little or no religious faith to sustain them, the judicious use of NDE stories can provide a unique and valuable resource to comfort and enlighten the sick and dying. It should be noted that other personal mystical experiences, such as deathbed visions of guardian angels or deceased family members, occur on a regular basis as well. As many hospice workers can testify, sometimes such visions can be frightening, but for the most part, they provide enormous comfort to the dying. Either way, such experiences deserve respectful consideration from doctors, nurses, and family members. Fear of being alone is an aspect of dying that can be erased by such visions. And part of a chaplain's uh, toolkit, as far as I'm concerned, is to share such stories with those who find comfort in them. For hospital staff who fear the, that sharing one patient's NDE story with another would be a violation of patient privacy rules, I would suggest the resource uh, or resources, but mainly the International Association for Near-Death Studies, which can uh, be uh, accessed at IANDS.org. Members have access to a wealth of material, including medical training videos, annual conferences, and especially written reports of NDEs and OBEs that offer um, vertical evidence that these uh, events are real. Moreover, I would invite you to check out uh, the Internet show you are listening to right now. I give myself a plug in this, at the end of this chapter, NDE Radio, at nderadio.org. There you'll find many uh, archive shows featuring interviews with near-death experiencers describing firsthand what they learned from their experience. A little self-promotion there at the end. That's... Uh, the last chapter by me in this book, Journey's End, Death, Dying, and the End of Life. And I, I trust uh, if you're in the profession uh, encountering death or dying at, at any aspect, I would suggest that you get a copy of this. It's a very wealth, it's a real wealth of, uh, of perspectives. And I hope to have uh, Victoria and Julie on sometime soon to talk about how they got it all together. I think there's time to read as well the November uh, 2018, this year's report to IANS members of an NDE, as reported by the experiencer. Um, this is a, a, a man who remembers his NDE during oral surgery as a youth, and he begins this way. When I was 16, my wisdom teeth came in, but they were impacted and needed to come out immediately. Well, in the old days, as I humorously view my timeline, they used uh, sodium pentothal to knock you out. Nowadays, oral surgeons don't use it 
and it's rarely used in hospital surgeries. Anyway, I believe I was given too much by the nurse attending the oral surgeon, and while on this drug, or in it, I indeed left this earthly plane. I know this because when I awoke, and I don't know how much time had passed, I found the dentist straddling the chair I was reclining in, frantically pounding my chest and screaming in my face, breathe, breathe, breathe. To this day, I can even remember the look of absolute fear on his face. When the nurse and surgeon saw I finally revived, they whispered back and forth, working quickly, and I recalled him saying to her, okay, let's do this and get this kid out of here. I will affirm this experience until the day I die, but I am certain when I heard it and felt uh, felt it during that office visit, uh, I'm sorry, for I am certain what I heard and felt during that office visit was completely real. It wasn't solely the drug making me hallucinate. That was only the catalyst that gave me probably the most wonderful experience I've ever known. Surely like nothing on earth. Throughout the rest of the surgery, I lay there awake, yet physically paralyzed because of the drug, uh, with only a seemingly never-ending stream of tears trickling from the corners of my eyes and into my ears while I considered and committed to memory all that I'd thought and felt when I left my body and my sadness for being brought back. The weight of life is more tremendous than any of us realize in comparison to the other side. At that time, and for quite a few years afterwards, I never told anyone what happened, for I knew even if I tried, the oral surgeon would be more than likely, the oral surgeon would more than likely deny the whole thing, and I was all of 16. Who would believe a teenager trying to explain death, the great beyond, or heaven? What was it like is the question most asked when I share this very private story with people. And so I'll tell you what I tell them. As a kid, did you ever go through your mother's kitchen herb and spice rack with the intention of concocting the most wonderful soup ever known to man? You know, getting the biggest pot you could find, filling it with some water and then any other liquid ingredients at hand or preferred and and then shaking it in the most glorious into it the most glorious scents from little ornate bottles, half of which you could barely pronounce the labels, labeled names of anise, basil, bay leaf, celery, coriander, and cumin seeds, cinnamon, cloves, dillweed, fennel, ginger, garlic, lemon peel, mint leaves, mustard seed, nutmeg, oregano, parsley, paprika, pepper, pumpkin spice, rosemary, sage, and Extracts of almond, butter, pecan, caramel, cherry, chocolate, lime, peppermint, and vanilla. Okay, you get the general idea. And then basically sprinkling in these wondrous aromas and flavors, stirring them all together in the heating pot, and truly believing they would collectively become such a delectable sensation that every human on earth would desire this breakthrough cuisine. Well, maybe I was a weird kid, but I did it. Anyway, the outcome? In short, a rather disappointing brownish-black liquid that was entirely tasteless. Now, for a child that was uh, adorably literal, I took this culinary defeat as quite a blow. How could such great things blended together become really nothing at all? 
for the life of me, uh, all of about eight or nine years, I couldn't fathom the, the why and how of all those incredibly beautiful, individually fabulous things once combined ended up being dumped down the kitchen sink. So it bothered me for a little while, but I was soon back on my bike and racing toward my next skin knee. Yet now I can parallel my NDE OBE with that youthful cooking experiment. Where I went was the big soup. You see, when the drug took effect, I do recall a sense of traveling, although not physically, but mentally. And I didn't see a tunnel or white light or any family members already passed or unwelcoming me or some spiritual being beckoning me. It was rather like in a slow-motion blink of an eye, I found myself enveloped in complete blackness. I had no bodily form, yet I was somewhat unearthly, somewhere unearthly, uh, with no gravity, and although it was darkness, or I was sightless, I sensed I was surrounded by and part of this exquisite and pure energy of everything. I mean everything. And we were all swirling in love. My next thought came as a sudden surprise. Hey, I, I'm still me, but I'm a thought. While at the same time, I sensed I was also part of everything, and everything that made up the utterly peaceful and loving blackness was part of me. And it was absolute bliss. I couldn't hear anything like others' thoughts or voices, but I was still thinking as who I am. And while in this state or realm of ethereal plane, I felt I was very much still alive, but as energy, with it all in this glorious, loving blackness. I sensed I was one with all the universes, galaxies and planets and life on Earth, all things seen and unseen, breathing or still, atoms to molecules to quarks and beyond, and it was infinite, and pure. I don't think there are any words in any language that could adequately describe it. The only thing I've ever been able to come up with is orgasmic consciousness. Wherever I was, I knew my own separateness and, at the same time, my oneness with everything and the greatest sensation of love in and of all of it and me. Well, what I gleaned from that is that we take ourself with us when we go, so we'd better like who we are, because we're stuck with ourself. Additionally, from that experience, I consider myself to be doubly blessed, for there's not a day I live here now where I spend a nanosecond of my time or energy fearing death. So many people waste moments worrying about dying when it will probably, it will probably be the best thing they ever know. The French call orgasms the little death, la petite mort, or literally translated, little death. And maybe they're on to something there, because dying for me was a great spiritual orgasm, and I'd do it again in an instant if given the opportunity. Okay, I'm not jumping in front of any buses or trains, but let's say I'm not afraid to go when my time comes. My body might instinctively fight to remain here, but my soul is looking forward to the oneness again. From my experience, I believe I know what is beyond this earthly realm, and that it is far more beautiful than any of this, including all those we love and our happenings. 
And perhaps I'm just one flake in the universal big jar of parsley. Maybe we're all just a grain of spice on that heavenly kitchen rack, and we're only waiting for our time to add flavor to the divine big bowl of soup. I mean, I'm thinking the Creator has got to be a much better chef than I'll ever be, but I still like to cook, though now I use all my ingredients in palatable moderation. Well, we are out of time for today. If listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org and hit the Past Shows button. And for information about IANS, just go to their website at iands.org. And be with us again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.